0: Living in a chemical world, and I'm a chemical nondescript person. We are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical girl. We are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical girl or boy. We are living in a chemical world, and I am a chemical.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to Chemical World. I am Kenna Crampton. And
2: I am Maggie Seldin, here with you today in my role as founder and executive director as High Rockies Harm Reduction. I am no longer with Mindsprings Health, but still working with individuals with a history of substance abuse and use.
1: And you are still a peer... Are you still a peer recovery coach? So I'm not technically a peer recovery coach.
2: I know it gets super, super confusing with all the very specific terminology. That role is funded by the state opioid response grant, whereas there are also peer specialists throughout the field employed by you know different companies. I am still a certified Colorado peer and family specialist, so I can still provide peer support to individuals with a history of substance use or alcohol use and their friends and family members, just not in that role as peer recovery coach anymore.
1: Okay. Well, that's good to know, and um, good to know that there's those um, nuances between coach and specialist
2: yeah and thank you for asking because while my title and company have changed the majority of the work I do remains the same continuing to partner with behavioral health medical health and um, law enforcement partners throughout the valley to support yeah our struggling populations
1: yeah that's great and I also just wanted to say that Maggie has already saved two lives in the last 6 months with providing Narcan to people, is that right? Yeah,
2: I guess th- I guess 3 as of the day of this recording to the to the best of my knowledge. It's it feels strange because it's like second-hand life saving, but yes through our Narcan distribution efforts, we have had 3 reported reversed overdoses
1: with Narcan
2: I've given people
1: well, that's really exciting. I just wanted to share that because that's um, one of the services of, of High Hierarchies Harm Reduction, and that's amazing. In the last six months, that's three lives that have been saved. So, thank you. Yeah,
2: and you know, um, my contact information is always available. I'll say it at the end of the show, but Maggie at HighRockiesHarmReduction.com if you're interested. You can also get Narcan from Mind Springs Health in Glenwood or Mid-Valley Family Practice in Basalt Willits area. Cool. So today I had, um, moving on from our, you know, standard Narcan opium conversation, I actually wanted to talk about hallucinogens today for our April episode. Like opium, hallucinogenic drugs have been used by
1: cultures all across the world for thousands of years. Hallucinogens are powerful psychoactive substances that affect thoughts, moods, perceptions, and other mental processes. They have been used for healing divination, spiritual, and personal development, and to expand creativity. While the
2: therapeutic benefits of hallucinogens are only recently being rediscovered in medical science, cactuses like peyote and San Pedro, which contain the hallucinogen mescaline, remain prevalent in the traditions of many indigenous cultures of the
1: Americas to this day. Psychedelic research began in the modern field of biological sciences in the 1930s, when scientists were studying molds known to cause diseases that include hallucinations and blood clotting as symptoms. Scientists were studying ergot mold to see if this blood clotting
2: could have medicinal uses, particularly to reduce blood loss during childbirth.
1: Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD in a Swiss laboratory in 1938. On April 19th, 1943,
2: Hoffman intentionally ingested the drug following an accidental exposure several days earlier and experienced the first recorded LSD hallucination while riding
1: home on his bicycle. To commemorate this experience, we celebrate Bicycle Day on April 19th, so we decided April was the perfect time to dedicate a show to psychedelic science. The use of psychedelics in the treatment
2: of psychological disorders, particularly depression and post-traumatic stress syndrome, has skyrocketed in recent years, making psychedelics an equally important topic for chemical world. Uh, Many psychedelic drugs, including LSD, ayahuasca, ibogaine, psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, and cannabis, which is a partial hallucinogen in addition to being a sedative and a painkiller, have shown great promise in treating chronic behavioral health conditions. Today, uh, we want to walk you through these advances and how psychedelic science and laws have changed in recent years.
1: In the first half of the 20th century, LSD was used by the American military in truth serum and mind control experiments but was ultimately deemed too unpredictable for use as a weapon.
2: Before the war on drugs, LSD was used therapeutically as it enhances awareness rather than dampening it, like most pharmaceutical drugs used in treating behavioral health conditions at the time and to this day. Thousands of patients received LSD treatment and hundreds of positive articles were published on the drug in the 1950s and 60s.
1: When Timothy Leary made LSD more popular and synonymous with the political rebellion of the 1960s, LSD and psilocybin became the target of media propaganda. Just as cannabis and cocaine had been negatively associated with quote-unquote undesirable
2: elements of society, a.k.a. racial minorities and poor people, hallucinogens also became associated with criminal activity and the pharmaceutical company that provided LSD to researchers recalled their product and brought a halt to hallucinogenic studies in the United States until the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies took up the efforts again in 1986. MAPS, for short, has been steadily making progress at bringing research focus back to the therapeutic use of hallucinogens. Among other things, they're responsible for the first serious studies of the therapeutic use of LSD since the 1970s, and they continue to fight for the use of hallucinogens in treating chronic mental disorders.
1: Hallucinogen is a pretty broad term, including substances with a variety of effects. But in general, it refers to drugs that distort our perception of reality, even when used in relatively low doses. Even the same substance can cause different effects to the same person, depending on a variety of contextual factors. Hence, the U.S. Army's failed attempts to weaponize hallucinogenic drugs. And I know from my own experience that when I like taking different types of mushrooms can affect me depending on how many, how much I take. Like I could take the same amount of one type of mushroom and it affects me completely different than the last time. Yeah. And
2: I'll just elaborate a little bit on that. The contextual factors, you know, I mean, you could have more water weight today than you did last week, you know, inside versus outside in feeling tired versus feeling alert around certain people versus other people. What it, was your diet like today? Maybe you had too much orange juice this morning. Like, yeah, so many things can change your trip and that's just, you know, your external factors not the the quality of the substance, which is mm-hmm. I would say most often different. I mean, not all the time, but usually you're going to have a different strain from use to use, whether it's LSD, psilocybin, whatever it is.
1: Yeah. And and that the same goes for when you're eating uh, cannabis as well. Like if, mm-hmm. depending on how much you've eaten, depending on how much coffee you've drinking, all of those factors, all of those need to be taken into consideration when you're eating these substances because... One day you could eat 10 milligrams of cannabis and you're good. And then the next day, maybe you had more coffee and less to eat or, or vice versa. I'm not sure exactly how it works. And uh, and it affects you way stronger. So you got to be careful and take those things into consideration always. Yeah. Like with any drug, I think it's best to
2: start out with a small amount and kind of wait a while and then taper up um, to what you're comfortable with. Yeah. So going back to kind of our classes of different hallucinogenic drugs LSD, psilocybin and mescaline make up the classic category of psychedelic hallucinogens. When I was younger, I used to think psychedelic drugs poison the mind and body because, you know, you get a stomach ache from psilocybin. I mean, technically it is like a toxin. It's like or if you were licking a toad, it's because there's poison on the toad, right? Um, so I was questionable about how could you put be experiencing divine or even intelligent things when you're high on psilocybin or LSD or whatever. However, cultures throughout history utilize psychedelic drugs to attain some form of spiritual transcendence or growth. As an adult, I felt like my vision was way better when I ingested psychedelics because I would look at my dogs and I could see every single hair in their fur. So maybe psychedelics could be used to expand awareness and understanding of the world. Mm. So as always, I'm fascinated by what drugs actually do to our brain and bodies, because if I can explain it, if I can hold it in my hands, then I can make sense of what's going on, right? Psychedelic hallucinogens work predominantly by affecting receptors in areas of our brain responsible for relaying sensory information. So what we hear, taste, smell, specifically though, are visual information. Taking these drugs, particularly LSD, increases the rate at which the visual cortex communicates with the rest of the brain. So this is one reason why people often experience visual hallucinations and maybe why the dog hair looks so detailed to me. (laughs) In general, psychedelic hallucinogens produce more communication among all areas of the brain, increasing global connectivity internally and externally. And this explains why users often feel a sense of connection with their surroundings. This is also one of the reasons these drugs are being used to treat depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Studies of psilocybin have also shown that the drug affects areas of the brain that make people more sociable and more emotional, and that the drug may reduce overactive areas of the brain in individuals with depression, potentially increasing mood.
1: Psilocybin is a hallucinogen found in three kinds of mushrooms, with a total of 200 different species containing the psychoactive substance. It has similar effects as LSD, but is far less potent. Denver became the first city to decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms in May of 2019. Since then, Oakland, California, Santa Cruz, California, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Somerville, Massachusetts, and Cambridge, Massachusetts all have followed suit in decriminalizing psilocybin. New Mexico's Court of Appeals also turned over a case determining that growing mushrooms at home for personal use does not constitute manufacturing a controlled substance.
2: So if you remember from our January episode, decriminalization doesn't mean that the drug is fully legal, but that personal use amounts for adults over the age of 21 are a low priority for law enforcement and may result in a small citation similar to a parking ticket.
1: Some of you may remember when Denver voters made it legal for adults to possess an ounce or less of cannabis in 2005 and then voted to make cannabis the police's lowest priority in 2007, years before true decriminalization and recreational cannabis came to town. So Colorado
2: has long since been kind of the epicenter for psychedelic science and drug policy reform in the United States. And the new psilocybin laws exist largely to allow for the medicinal use of psychedelic mushrooms in treating a variety of illnesses, similar to why cannabis has kind of become so popular in recreational use because it is said to have a variety of medicinal uses. Psilocybin mushrooms have been shown to treat a variety of illnesses, including cluster headaches, addictions to most things, and the general disposition of terminal patients. While all classic hallucinogens have been shown to produce positive effects with these issues, psilocybin chips are largely considered to be softer, warmer, more relaxing, and less intense than LSD trips. So it's a little more desirable for some of these medical uses. Mushrooms tend to be more strongly visual, more euphoric, and associated with less paranoia. This is straight out of a textbook and does not represent my experience with these drugs at all. Uh, But I will say that LSD definitely is stronger, although I have experienced my fair share of paranoia with psilocybin. And again, you know, it's all very contextual. And I think a lot of it had to do with where I was at emotionally in my life.
1: I know that there was a point in my life where I felt more comfortable taking LSD over mushrooms because I felt like, okay, well, I can take half a hit or a hit and I know what I'm going to expect. Whereas with mushrooms... Like I said, there's been times where I've eaten one amount of mushrooms and then I have a different type. Like I said, there's three different types of mushrooms that have the psilocybin in them. And, well, you know, one type I know has one time affected me. Like I ate such a small amount and I was amazed. I ended up having an outer body experience. It was intense. So I just, there was a point when I felt more comfortable just eating LSD because I felt like I knew what I was getting myself into more so than if I was going to eat some mushrooms.
2: And that makes sense to me. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about MDMA today. But on this show, we have talked about the differences between MDMA and ecstasy and that it's a a difference of purity, right? And so even though LSD is a synthetic drug, because it's synthetic, it's kind of like we know what's in it. It's like why Oxycontin is safer today than heroin off the street because, hey, I know for sure what's in it. It if I for sure got it from a doctor you know mm-hmm. and whereas mushrooms it, it can be very different especially because I don't know I almost even think about like sushi where it's just like if you don't prepare it right if you don't cultivate it right mm-hmm. if you don't grow it right you don't really know what's gonna happen and I've even had like the exact same mushrooms that one day maybe didn't do anything and then the next day or a week later made me really sick And I also think it's important to note that this same textbook tells me that, um, which is like my favorite book of all time, it's called Drugs, Mind, Body, and Society, uh, copyright 2019. So it's like very up to date by Martha Rosenthal. They talk about how tolerance to the effects of psychedelics actually builds up really quickly. And so I have a friend who often will take psychedelics and then retake them that same night because they want to extend their high. And On paper, that might not actually work. But again, like every single person is different and your body is going to react
1: differently. And there's just so many different things that can happen. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, I would we would eat an eighth of mushrooms like I would eat an eighth of mushrooms to myself, which now I'm just like I just don't understand why I would eat that much. Because now, if I'm going to eat mushrooms, I will eat just a very small amount, and that's more on the microdosing level. Which, on that note, people have been talking a lot about that microdosing mushrooms and or psilocybin, really, to treat depression. What what do what do you think about that, Maggie?
2: Yeah, I like to think of what Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, uh, I always think of what he says in a video, which is somebody asks him, like, what do you think about micro dosing? And he says, actually, I think it's more about macro dosing. <laughs> and that just cracks me up. Uh, but what he's talking about is that, you know, what MAPS does in a lot of their clinical trials, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as well, is they give you not extremely high, but they give you high doses of these drugs under supervision because they want to maximize the effect. So I don't really know as much about the science of microdosing. I mean, I hear in theory, and it makes sense when you think about the science of mushrooms, that it can, yeah, definitely like uplift your mood. But what is being done in these clinical trials is that they're giving you higher doses of psychedelics in supervised settings with counseling in between and the belief is that that will give you more long-term relief from your depression, whereas doing the microdosing might be more of like a temporary solution.
1: Mm. I know that like I have I have a couple capsules of microdose doses. And I sometimes like if I'm going to be in a social setting and I know it's, I'm going to have a little anxiety – We'll take that and that just it's so I'm, I'm not messed up in any way like because obviously I used to use alcohol to calm my anxiety in social situations and that in the end doesn't actually help because you just make a fool of yourself and then you are embarrassed the next day <laughs> or at least if you're an alcoholic and you over drink which is what I do but that's just really a nice way to like it says it uplifts your mood a little bit it just really I don't even feel like I'm affected, but it almost makes things a little more sparkly is one way people have said, like explained it. Yeah. And I would agree. That's how I feel about low
2: doses of psilocybin as an adult, too. And that was not my experience when I was younger. And I think it was because I had a lot of underlying psychological trauma and issues that I was not really willing to deal with. And Mm -hmm. so, again, you know, I think. The biggest point here is that taking these drugs can have unpredictable results, but if you take them in the right context with the right supervision, it can be therapeutic and beneficial for a variety of conditions. And I also just want to take this moment to address the fact that one of the big goals of Chemical World and High Rockies Harm Reduction is to reduce the stigma of substance use. Just today in the post-independent online, I saw somebody calling somebody else a druggie, for really a conviction that we don't really know that much about. And it just kind of hurt me to see that word because, again, like we don't know all the details of this person's situation. And, like, we all use drugs, whether that's coffee or cigarettes or aspirin. And, you know, it just means a lot to me that Kenna and I can be open about our substance use because we have really struggled with our substance use for so many years. And we are at a place where we feel really healthy in our lives. And yeah, we might sometimes use psychedelics on the weekends, but we're not crashing our cars or ruining our lives or, you know, yeah, embarrassing ourselves every night at social events. And so, you know, it's just important to me that we consider that most of us have substance use and we need to do away with the stigma and judgment and just accept that we all have different ways that we cope with life.
1: I really like that. And I just want to say that it it all starts with catching yourself. Uh, earlier today, I was telling Maggie about a scene in a show and I said the word junkie and I, was, and I caught myself and said, Oh my gosh, I shouldn't even be saying that. You know, I just, because that's what they said in the show that was made in the early 2000s, even though people still use that word frequently, I caught myself and said, Oh, I shouldn't use that word. And so We all do it, you know, and I just think it's always important to uh, the the first the way to, to change it is to catch yourself and say, oh, I didn't mean that.
2: Yeah. And also, you know, to talk about it, I was this is kind of a non sequitur, but I was reading last night about the Muppet show's choice to put up a disclaimer because rather than hide what they had done, they wanted to open up conversations about how we used to talk about things and the images that we used to think were okay. And I really, really respected that a lot.
1: Oh, I love that, too, because I do think it's important to remember that 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 it is a part of our history, how we used to speak to people and about people, especially on television and how it has shaped the way that people still speak about people today, you know, and and it's important to still like to not take that away, but to say this is not okay, but it's. Or maybe it doesn't reflect what we actually want to say.
2: Well, and if we, you know, the old adage, if we forget history, then we're doomed to repeat it. And Mm -hmm. of course, I think some really terrible, terrible things have happened in American history and even in global history in the past 150, 100 years. And we need to, I mean, speaking as a Jewish woman, we need to remember these things for fear of them being repeated. If we want to just bury it up and act like it never happened, that can be. Very dangerous. But I also wanted to just address that the reason, too, why, and none of us are perfect and we're always, you know, working and growing together as a society. But the reason why words like junkie and druggie are so hurtful is because it suggests that it's a moral failing. And that's really not what's going on in addiction. It's a chemical brain disease and substances like opioids or sugar or, you know, fat, cigarettes, alcohol, these are addictive substances. And so as human beings, we don't necessarily have a lot of control over our relationship with these substances. And so just moving away from like, it's not the person's fault, and it's not a moral failing. And it doesn't even mean that they're an addict or a regular user because they use once or occasionally. So going back to our conversation about hallucinogens, we will finish up the psilocybin conversation by just saying that you can receive um, psilocybin treatment throughout the front range. And right here in the valley, you can also get ketamine treatment from Apex Ketamine in Glenwood, which um, I don't want to like put in a plug for them necessarily, but I will just say that I have communicated with them, and it's like a super on-the-level company and run by some very reputable folks. And ketamine itself is a very difficult drug to classify because it does have anesthetic properties, but it also has psychoactive effects and causes a sense of detachment from reality. So it's technically classified as a disassociative hallucinogen. Disassociative hallucinogens, which include PCP and ketamine, are anesthetics that produce a sense of detachment from the surrounding environment, both from one's body and the outside world, which is why ketamine is often used in surgery. These drugs also have the ability to reduce pain, influence memory loss and formation, and can even
1: lead to catalepsy, a coma-like state with or without seizures. Ketamine was first marketed in the early 1960s as a surgical anesthetic and was used in the battlefields in Vietnam. Ketamine was considered a safer anesthetic for the time since it doesn't cause respiratory depression. But the side effects of hallucinations and paranoia make it a less popular option. Though it is still used today and classified as a Schedule 3 drug, it also experienced popularity for recreational use among the club scene in the 1980s.
0: So, disassociative
2: hallucinogens create the sense of disconnection from one's body and surroundings by binding and blocking certain receptors that are responsible for learning and memory and our response to external stimuli. These drugs also increase the amount of dopamine in the brain, creating a state of agitation and stimulation and increased movement. And this effect on dopamine, which is kind of like our one of our reward chemicals in the brain. This is why people can become addicted to PCP and ketamine but not other hallucinogens mm. because they don't affect dopamine the way that these dissociative drugs do. So in 2000, I was actually on a ketamine's website last night watching this little video of like, how exactly is ketamine working? So in 2000, they discovered that blocking these specific receptors in our brain called NMDA receptors with ketamine produced an incredible antidepressant effect that could last up to months. So these NMDA receptors, this is a totally different and more effective pathway than classic antidepressants namely selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, take. And so about 50% of people do not really have a response to SSRIs. And this was an indication that potentially there's a much more effective way to treat depression. Hmm. Other drugs act on NMDA receptors in a similar way, but since ketamine was approved by the FDA in 1970 and is used in hospitals across the country every day, it was easy to access to use in the treatment of depression. Mm. And so minimal doses have been shown to help profoundly with depression when administered through IV. And so ketamine maintains its popularity, not only as a recreational drug, but in the treatment of mood disorders, including anxiety and PTSD, chronic pain and depression. So ketamine was the lucky one. It was already a schedule of three drugs. So clinicians can use it to treat depression like they do here in Glenwood. Unfortunately, psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA continue to be Schedule One drugs, meaning they can't even be researched, right? So luckily, there are organizations like MAPS out there that are somehow able to keep researching this drug because it's a huge... Bummer for the medical community that these are Schedule One substances. But our last hallucinogenic drug that we're going to look at today that's used in the treatment of behavioral health conditions is MDMA. MDMA was invented in 1912 by German chemist Anton Kolisch who was also working on developing anti-clotting drugs for childbirth, similar to Albert Hoffman 30 years later. MDMA was developed as an intermediate step in the synthesis of another chemical, and it wasn't tested on humans until the 1950s when, you guessed it, the U.S. Army used it as part of their attempts to develop brainwashing weapons.
1: In the 1960s, MDMA was synthesized and tested as a psychotherapeutic drug and the first articles on the research were published in the 1970s. The drug became popular in talk therapy among California psychotherapists as it increased empathy and trust in the therapeutic process. Despite
2: recommendations from medical professionals and the courts, the DEA inevitably classified MDMA as a Schedule I drug in the mid-1980s, making it impossible to continue clinical studies and research, the same fate that LSD and psilocybin experienced. Fortunately, MAPS was created in 1986 to ensure that psychedelic drugs continue to be studied for their obvious potential in treating mental illnesses. This intent to discredit the benefits of MDMA was actually the catalyst for the creation of MAPS. Rick Doblin, founder, has been forging the way for MDMA by going through the arduous process of FDA approval and the multiple phases of clinical trials needed to get that. On April 8th, MAP celebrated their 35th anniversary, and in December of 2020, they celebrated MDMA being approved to enter the third phase, which is the final phase of the FDA approval process, and the results from these clinical trials
1: are looking really good so far. Peyote, mescaline, and MDMA belong to a class of hallucinogens called phenyl,thylamine, psychedelic hallucinogens, which means they are structurally similar to dopamine. MDMA is a synthetic hallucinogen, making it more potent and more toxic than naturally occurring substances like peyote and more likely to cause stimulant effects in small doses, but hallucinogenic effects in high doses.
2: And again, I think as we round out all the hallucinogens we've talked about today, we can see just how broad this class of Mm -hmm. drugs really is. And like the case of ketamine and PCP, it's kind of like, we don't know what class to put them in. So they definitely cause hallucinations. And, you know, with MDMA, a lot of people probably think about it as more of a stimulant, but again, can cause hallucinations in large doses. So these drugs just find themselves in these classes. Although MDMA's effects on the brain are actually similar to amphetamines, as it releases serotonin, Blocks the reuptake of serotonin and inhibits the production of the enzymes that breaks serotonin down, creating that unnatural surge of feel good chemicals in the brain. Serotonin binds to many different kinds of receptors and therefore is responsible for a variety of effects. So while MDMA can have long term effects on our body's ability to produce serotonin, unlike LSD and psilocybin, it also increases the level of other endorphins like dopamine, oxytocin, and prolactin. And this is what explains MDMA's empathic effects, meaning the positive social effects, which lead to positive social interactions because it improves our ability to recognize positive emotions in others and reduces the ability to recognize negative emotions. MDMA also activates parts of the brain associated with reward and reduces fear and anger by decreasing
1: activity in the amygdala, the part of the brain that processes these emotions. There can, of course, be adverse side effects to MDMA, including serotonin syndrome or long-term depression that can occur when the brain can no longer produce an adequate level of serotonin due to the overproduction, especially when taken in high doses. But when taken in controlled amounts in a controlled environment, under the supervision of a trained professional, MDMA can help individuals address their past trauma from a place of positivity and disconnection so they can avoid reliving the trauma by remembering it. The clinical trials conducted so far for the use of therapeutic MDMA
2: and treating PTSD involved two eight-hour sessions held several weeks apart with weekly therapy sessions in between. There's still no magic bullet. It still takes time and counseling, but 83% of participants in these studies were no longer diagnosed with PTSD at the two-month follow-up appointment. With all that you have learned today about these novel treatments for PTSD and depression, I wanted to address that currently the only FDA-approved medications for PTSD are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, like Prozac, Paxil, and Zoloft. And while many people do find relief with these drugs, the clinical trial evidence for their effectiveness is actually very poor, especially when taken without regular counseling. I believe I mentioned earlier that about 50% of people feel relief with SSRIs. Those that don't are considered treatment-resistant. And so all of these treatments, MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, or you know there are ayahuasca, ibogaine, and LSD treatments for these behavioral health conditions as well, You can only get these treatments if you have treatment-resistant depression or treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress syndrome, which means that you have to have tried an SSRI and you have to have tried counseling and you have to have severe suicidal conditions. The thing about SSRIs is that they can be very unsafe and individuals with a history of psychiatric illness, either personally or in their families, like myself, are contraindicated, meaning they cannot take SSRIs for fear that it might evoke a psychotic episode or something of that nature. And so I believe that there is some wiggle room there if you are unable to try SSRIs. Um, And, you know, counseling, I think, is a component of any treatment is always going to be necessary. But it just goes to show, you know, where our values are as a nation I mean, historically, they're in capitalism and they're in what makes money, not what actually helps people. Mm-hmm. So I think I know I don't want to disparage SSRIs too much because I know a lot of people who get a lot of help from them. But as always, it's all about options and people need to have options. And the you know science on psychedelics, it's pretty exciting and pretty interesting. And when we look at how these drugs are actually working in our brains, it actually makes a lot of sense that that they would be very helpful and very therapeutic. But again, only when taken in a supervised environment.
0: Yeah,
1: I I would be really interested to see what it's like. And I've heard, you know, different podcasts and stories about people um, one one story about a woman take, uh doing a psilocybin treatment to quit smoking cigarettes, which worked. And then another, um, I I heard a story of a man doing uh, ketamine to uh, treat his depression, and he was really enjoying it. Um, so yeah, interesting.
2: and um, I I actually personally signed up for. I think psilocybin trials, and like I just never heard anything back. I think I even reached out to some providers on the Front Range and just mm-hmm. never heard anything back. I did talk to the ketamine provider in Glenwood, and even you know reviewing this stuff last night was like, oh, maybe that is. Because the thing is for me that the ketamine science is very different than the MDMA and psilocybin science, but I'm also a person where it doesn't matter what the drug is. I'm trying to deal with my emotional well-being in a natural way. And for me, that means getting rid of the toxins I'm putting in my body and seeing how I feel then Mm -hmm. before adding new medications. But um, I really encourage people to look into this because the studies on ayahuasca and ibogaine for depression, I mean, there are, yeah, a lot of really positive options out there for sure. So yeah, I think that that's about all that I had mocked up for today, but I hope everyone has a really happy Bicycle Day and just encouraging you all to, you know, learn more about this, have a happy Earth Day. And uh, it's just funny to me that Bicycle Day is 419 and then I'm sure plenty of people are out there celebrating 420 as well. So, you know, you can double up and have a a safe, productive weekend. (laughs) Yes, be safe out there, especially while riding your bike. And as always, my name is Maggie Seldine working to change the way we do things here, the way that we treat each other at the end of the day it is pretty much all I'm trying to do and trying to save some lives. So if you have any interest in any of the topics that we've discussed today or have questions about substance use or addiction, are interested in seeking help for yourself or your friends and family, or want some Narcan... Feel free to reach out to me
1: at Maggie at HighRockiesHarmReduction.com. Thank you for listening to Chemical World. If you enjoy listening to programs like Chemical World, please consider showing your support for Katie and k during our spring membership drive going on now till April 21st. Maggie and I both grew up here at Katie and and it has really helped me find my voice and is now a platform for Maggie to share all of the valuable information she has learned throughout her life. Chemical World is created by Maggie and me. The theme music is written and performed by Muggsy Fay, a.k.a. Maggie Sildene. You can catch all of our past episodes and the extended version of this episode at katieandk.org, Apple, or Google Podcast, including our episode from last month where we talk about our new nonprofit, High Rockies Harm Reduction. More information is at highrockiesharmreduction.com. Please follow Chemical World and High Rocky's Harm Reduction on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Please rate and review Chemical World on your favorite podcast platform so we can reach and educate as many people as possible. Take care, everyone. And remember, you don't have to be sober to keep your community clean.
0: Drugs may come and drugs may go and that's all right, you see. Experience has made me rich and now I can use safely. It might be beer, it might be dope, it may even be caffeine. But we all have a little something that keeps us on our feet. What's important is being safe and stopping the spread of disease you do not have to be sober to keep your community clean because we are living in a chemical world and I am a chemical girl or oh boy we are living in a chemical world and I am a chemical gender nondescript we are living in a chemical world and I am a chemical we are living in a chemical world and I am a chemical girl you know we are living in a chemical world and I am a chemical girl